today on episode number 359 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, Beth Kugler-Blom joins me to talk about her book, Design to Engage. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Beth Kugler-Blom began her career as a training coordinator and soon became a trainer and then facilitator herself, both as an employee, with other organizations, and through her own learning design and facilitation business when she began in 2011. Beth has helped clients, large and small, in all sectors design and facilitate great learning experiences face-to-face and online. Beth has been an instructional designer for the Teaching and Learning Center at Royal Rhodes University and in the nonprofit sector. She teaches learning design and facilitation in publicly accessible courses through her own business and for select post-secondary and community environments, as well as for private clients. In her work for community organizations and higher education institutions, as well as for corporations, government, and healthcare, Beth has discovered how facilitation of learning could be and should be enhanced. Beth lives outside of Victoria, British Columbia with her husband and daughter. Beth, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. I know that we both have known a little bit of each other's work for years now, I think. I mean, I've come across yours a long, long while ago and was so happy to hear about your book coming out and that you were so kind as to send me a copy and to read it voraciously and got so much out of it. So thanks for joining me today for a conversation about it. And I'm sure we won't stick just to the book, but to other things that come up as well. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I've been following your podcast for years. And I know my friend Isabeau here in BC has been on your show before. And I've just really appreciated learning from your guests and yourself over the years. So thanks for what you do as we start off here. I don't think I realize that you're two are friends. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, I always like it when I get to have a conversation with someone where I feel like I know a little bit more than just whatever that moment is bringing about. But I'd like to start out just by looking at intentionality and on how important that is to you in terms of designing something for learners. Mm -hmm. It's so important. And I think I think about intentionality in a lot of different ways. And some of it is around, you know, the content. What is the content that, you know, we're going to teach or facilitate learning around and how do we bring intentionality to what that is? And, uh, but it's sort of, you know, turning our minds around, on that too, because you know, often in my work as a learning designer or instructional designer, I'm helping people think of not just they, what they want to teach, but how are they going to help their students or their participants learn? And, you know, that backwards design piece, right? What are those people going to come out of the experience with and being really intentional about nailing that down? Because a lot of people haven't really you know, they haven't learned how to do that yet, that piece about articulating outcomes. And so some of that that good work that we can do together, myself and another person, or for my own teaching, 
trying to nail that down. What is it that we want for that behavior change or that knowledge change by the end? And, and then, and then of course, how do we get people to do that? And for some of the people that haven't taken education as, you know, they haven't done the, the classes or, you know, read the books themselves about how to do it. Those that's really a key, you know, unlocking for them of how to approach design of learning. Um, so there's pieces around intentionality with that, um, with learning design, but then there's how we show up as, as human beings too, to the learning environment where, you know, where, where, wherever that is face-to-face or online. Both of these things are just, just such big elements of being a teacher. And you talk about that backwards design, beginning with the end in mind. And a lot of people struggle with that because they want there to be room for the ending not to be in sight when we begin. And what do you coach people around when, if I definitely know where we need to land and there, there's really measurable things or that there are going to be things that emerge that we never could have planned because we don't know who the learners are and what's going to happen when we begin to build that community? Yeah, that is the thing. And that's one of the things people say when they speak against learning outcome, like outcomes-based learning, isn't it? Because they want to leave room for those emergent things to come along the way. And I too want that, but I want to start with outcomes still because I feel like I want to plan, but then to be flexible within that. Otherwise, we're just, I always call it throwing spaghetti on the wall. Like we're kind of just showing up like my old you know, I took history as my first degree and people just kind of sh- show up, you know, with their ream of notes and kind of plunk them down and start talking. And I think we can do better than that. I think we should come with a pretty solid plan and know how to get our learners there. But then if something happens in the classroom, whatever that classroom looks like, that we feel that we need and our learners need at the time, I think we do have to leave room for that flexibility. So it's a bit of both, isn't it? Sort of like the art and science of learning design or teaching because we've got we've got a plan, but then we can be flexible within that. Um, and hopefully there's always another next session. I mean, if you're teaching a longer course, there's a next session to continue to go back to the original plan, but you veered where the group needed to go. And maybe that's the, the thing, right? We're always making decisions. Does the group need to go in that direction at this particular time? And that little voice in the back of our head is helping us say yes or no to that. Or sometimes we ask the group, but uh, it's a, it's a balancing act, isn't it? Oh, and I just think it does have to be a both and either extreme, I think, is not going to lend itself to what's possible when you bring together a group of people like that. And I've been experimenting a little bit. I'm, I guess I first wanted to say that. I don't think it works super well to bring a group of people together and be like, hey, what did you want to learn? You know, and I just I haven't had I mean, I, I was going to say I haven't had success, but candidly, I I haven't ever given my full oomph to it any, <laughs> anyway. But just the idea, if you were going to take a class, I, I'm wrapping up a business ethics class right now. And what do you want to learn about business ethics? Well, in a lot of classes we might teach, they wouldn't even really know what the possibilities were, especially if, if I'm thinking about <laughs> at our dinner last night, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail bath because it would be really embarrassing for me. And I've embarrassed myself a lot on this podcast and I don't want to do it purposefully. I'd rather have it be on accident. But I really revealed to my seven-year-old and nine-year-old and husband how little I know about space and about our travels to the moon. And, and yes, um, 
it was rather embarrassing. And so if you asked me, you know, what do you want to learn? It's going to be really limited because I, I just don't know that much about that body of knowledge. So I do. But anyway, so I was, I was going to also mention that I have been experimenting in this particular class, having a lear- learning outcome about asking them to reflect throughout the class and explore opportunities to change their mind about something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, you're right, people don't know what they don't know. But you know, if you provide the container, and then give them the space within that container to share what they know, or ask the questions that they have about it, I think that's where people fall down sometimes, isn't it? Because they provide the container, but then they don't actually let anybody participate (laughs) in the experience, right? So it's like, we have, you know, I, in my book, I say, you know, like learning outcomes is, you know, shooting an arrow towards a target. Like we have a target that we're trying to hit, but then we have to figure out how to get people there and let them participate in that and figure out what they have to share and assume that they come with something to share, whether it's about an actual topic or something that's related, you know, maybe something that's in a different field that actually does apply because it's the same sort of thing or it's learning that we can bring across fields or something. But yeah, flexibility within structure, I suppose, is kind of the art piece, isn't it? Yeah. What kinds of things come up for you when you've seen people struggle with issues of how we show up in learning spaces and places? Where where have been some of the areas of challenge you've seen people have? Yeah, I think one of them is that they come to teaching or facilitation um, and they think that they have to show up as the extreme expert that you know has it all figured out that can't make mistakes that yeah just has to have all the answers and i really want to show up as a learner as well as a facilitator of learning and you know yes of course we have expertise in the topic that's why we've been asked to teach the course for example or the workshop but to recognize that we're all still human, we're all still fallible, and there are places where we don't know. And in fact, it actually helps our learners if we say more about where we're still, you know, struggling with the content or where we'll, where we are still taking risks and challenging ourselves to learn more about the content. I, I mean, I, I think people want to see our vulnerability in a way, right? They want to see that we're human beings as well as teacher and, and that we can make mistakes and recover from them. And we'll all get there somehow together as a group that we've like, we've, we've got them, right? Like we've, we've come, you know, with that intentionality we were talking about and planned the experience with intention, but that we don't have it all figured out all the time. And we probably never will, but together we're going to, we're going to do our best job and keep learning. Like keep learning. That's that's what I want for all of us all the time. And to be real and human about that. It's been a while since I have taught in a classroom, classroom, classroom. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things when I've coached faculty over the the many years is and it comes up a lot with women specifically, is that we can sometimes have a tendency to over apologize for things. So if the mm-hmm. technology, if you can't get your dongle thingy to work right and you can't get the projector working that we don't have to narrate that portion of our life where things aren't going the way we want that we could actually just be silent for a moment and try to figure it out and and I don't want to sound like I'm suggesting that people play tricks on people but it's more about anything that might distract from the learning experience so I would always suggest we have some kind of a plan 
be, if you can't get the sound to work or you can't get the projector to work, that there's some kind of a plan B. And we don't necessarily have to always tell people that we're going with our plan B. So part of this is, is I think we're on another both and perhaps, Beth, that I both need to come across as credible and competent so that we can have a safe enough environment that we can fail. So I, I, I both want to show up as fully human that I can make mistakes and, and humble. It's a really, it's a tough juxtaposition to hit right. And I, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how you've found your way in being able to do what works for you. And then also what you've seen as maybe different for other people and how they find what works for them and, and all of that messy stuff. Sure. Yeah, it is messy. And I, you know, I think it's like a spectrum or something like that, isn't it? Because you you can't show up as a complete basket case, can you? Because, you know, you are going to lose all credibility. So, but there's a sweet spot maybe that we have to find between authenticity and professionalism or, or have a redefining of professionalism, what that looks like. Professionalism can be showing our fallibility sometimes. But, you know, I have a different situation in my teaching or my facilitation that than other people, because I teach about teaching and I teach about my, you know, my topic is about helping people learn how to teach and facilitate. And so I have to drop the curtain, I call it a little bit more often than other people who might be teaching writing or science or whatnot. Right. And so you're, you know, what they might want to sort of benignly cover up their mistakes in some ways, a little bit more than I, and just, you know, keep going with their plan B and no one will be the wiser. In my work, because I'm working with facilitators and faculty members a lot, you know, those are almost exclusively who I I have in my workshops. I have to drop those curtains and show them when I've screwed up because they need to see that you can, you know, fail and it'll be okay. And that happens to all of us and we just keep going and figure it out. And in fact, I do facilitate community agreements or group agreements at the start of almost everything I do and especially online these days. And one of my group agreements is weird things will probably happen. Let's roll with it (laughs) and just expect, you know, technology is going to do some weird stuff and we're going to roll with it and it'll be okay. Like, so I'm kind of setting the scene that we all can handle anything that particularly technology throws at us right now. But I do find dropping the curtain. I mean, it is very vulnerable and it's something I still wrestle with myself, you know, cause you end the session, you look back at it and go, Oh yeah, I not only made a little mistake, but I had to tell everybody about it because I want them to learn about the mistake. Um, but it is hard to do that. And, you know, you just kind of keep showing up and being vulnerable and doing it over and over again in this work. But that's, that's the growth of this career, I think, too. You are talking about the not the fear of not having all the answers. And that is an interesting journey for me to think about where when I have professionally entered into a new domain, I see those fears, I observe those fears in myself elevating. And then there's this straight and I can't quite figure out but I think it might have something to do with what's called the Dunning-Kruger effect. I don't know if you're familiar with these researchers but it's it's the idea that you know a little bit about something and your confidence is overinflated and then as soon as you get to know a decent about you realize you know nothing at all. So I I feel like a lot of times when I've entered into a new domain that feels really uncomfortable then I'm more feeling like I'd have to have all those answers. 
And then once you even just get past your ankle depth of any domain, you go, oh my gosh, well, how could anybody think that they had all the answers? And I was just listening to a podcast interview the other day of, he's actually a Catholic theologian. His name is Richard Rohr, and he's been doing all these beautiful, exquisite podcasts, and they were they were coming to a close. He's, he's probably not going to be alive for too much longer. And so it was really just this beautiful, intimate conversation among three friends that had, you know, had all this dialogue over all these years and which now is coming to a close. It was the final episode where they looked back at all their conversations. And he's written, I don't even know, I'm going to guess something like 20 books. And still they'd ask him a question and he'd go, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) And I just, I just love that, you know, that really when you do seem like you might know a thing or two about something, you just realize how vast any domain of knowledge or experience is. And yeah, it's hard to, I don't know, I've had a hard time trying to help other people through that fear, because I do, I do know it's a very real fear. There certainly are techniques. Do you have things that you advise when, when it comes up where they are just this dense fear of, oh my gosh, what if a student asks me a question? I don't know the answer. How, what do how do you advise that as a facilitator? Well, sometimes I use it as a facilitative technique, right? And remember, I'm teaching people who are also facilitators. And, but I think you would do this with students, too, that you would turn it around to the class, you know, and just say, huh, that's a great question. You know, what, if, what does everyone else think first, right? And so, I mean, that's a really easy tip to just even buy yourself some time while your brain works on it in the back end oh, and yeah. uh, try to figure out what you would say if you had to respond to it. But you know, isn't it more engaging to turn it around to the group, whoever's in the group and say, hmm, I don't know. That's a great, that's a great thought. What do people think about that? Let's see some hands or something. So, you know, just turning it around, like, don't we answer all the questions sometimes too much as the faculty member or the facilitator and probably should turn questions back to the group more often that they expect us to ask. I've written, you know, my book about, uh, what do I call it? The teacher tension is that often people show up, often adults show up to, you know, an adult education experience and they want, they expect that the teacher quote unquote will answer all of the questions. And I've had feedback in my evaluation forms where they kind of were frustrated that I wasn't the one to answer all the questions, but I don't want to answer all the questions and I shouldn't answer all the questions. Should I, you know, none of us should, because that's not as engaging as turning it for the group to kind of mull around together. And sometimes I talk about the, the pull versus the push, you know, when we're new to teaching and standing up in front of groups, we often just push information and content at people. But over time we learn to ask amazing questions, you know, the questions that people can't help but answer or engage with to pull information and experience and and ideas from the group. So that that pull versus push, I think is a great back pocket kind of tip to to give a new facilitator, a new faculty member, because they don't have to have it all figured out. You know, sometimes we just have to have the right questions, not all the answers, don't we? When I was 22, I was teaching computer applications classes. I taught a lot of Microsoft Excel. (laughs) And I remember someone asking me, how many characters can you fit in one of those columns? And I was stumped. I had never been asked that question before. And panic, panic, panic in my brain. And it turned out 
that the question that they really wanted to ask is, how do I widen the width of these columns? But since they didn't even know that was possible, they just wanted to know, what are my limitations? So I found it sometimes helpful to politely ask, can you give me an example or what Tell me why you would want to know that information without making the person seem defensive. But so many times questions are asked because we don't have an imagination big enough to actually know the real question we want to know. Because once you know, you can expand the width of those columns and all of a sudden, how many characters? Well, it would depend on what font you were using and depend on what characters because we have proportional spacing and a capital E is much wider than a capital I or the number one or whatever. So sometimes that can be helped too. But I do think it goes back to what you spoke about in the beginning as showing up as human beings. And that if we start to tell ourselves in our head that we're, we're to be expected to know every answer to every possible question, that's a really dangerous place to be, I think, living our lives, let alone if we're taking on a role as teacher or facilitator. Yeah, I think exactly. And it's, if we can all take that into teaching and learning situations, doesn't it take the pressure off that we know a lot because that's why we're there. That's why we've been asked to be there, but we don't have to know it all because we'll never know it all. And so just, you know, you can kind of take that to the bank, right? It's, it's a journey. We're all on it and we're all learning from each other. And, you know, we've got colleagues in the field. We've got your podcast. We've got other, you know, books. And there's always so much more to learn. We can never know it all. But I think that's why I'm in the field, to be honest, you know, because I don't want to be in a field where I'm not learning anything new ever. This is why I'm in teaching and learning. And I, you know, I'll be in it for my whole career because of the shifts and the journeys and the new explorations, especially around technology, right? With educational technology, there's just so much to explore and learn with all the time, but that's why I'm in the whole game. And that's the exciting piece. So I can really get on my soapbox about like the, you know, it's like the passion, right? If we, if we should be in these roles, if we're passionate about learning, not just for our students or our participants, but for ourselves, that makes a great teacher or a great facilitator of learning. Another big area that people get challenged with has to do with timing. And it can go both directions, as you know, speaking of a spectrum of things. Everything from I just try to cram 13 things into what could really only fit three things nicely or that fear of I'm going to run out and have nothing to say. And so what is your guidance for us when thinking about timing for whatever kind of class that we're teaching? Yeah, timing is, you're right. I get a lot of questions about timing and you're right. It can happen on both ends of the spectrum. From my experience, people don't usually have the problem of not having enough to say, (laughs) you know, especially when they start to engage the groups. And uh, I've been involved with for many years in the instructional skills workshop here in British Columbia. And I know it's in other places as well. And, and we help faculty learn how to teach and they teach 10 minute mini lessons. And as soon as they kind of get the memo about engagement, rather than just sort of lecturing at, you know, for the entire 10 minutes, they go, whoa, when you create an active learning experience, it actually takes, you know, some time to, to have people go through that experience and participate in the activity. So when you start asking questions or developing and and facilitating activities, timing is not usually a problem because people usually get so engaged that you almost run out of time, don't you? So, so then we go to the other problem. So when we have, you know, too little time and too much content, that's kind of the more typical question that I get asked. And, you know, it's the, 
the air quotes of the content that I have to cover, you know? So in whatever length of time that people have for their session, they always have too much. And because there's sort of, you know, someone's asking them to, like a syllabus is asking them to kind of cover too much in the session. So we always have that problem of content that we have to cover. But one of the things I try to do with people is to help. I mean, outcomes helps identifying the outcomes, because if you can really nail down the change that you want to have in those learners by the end of whatever time you have with them, then you can get really real in the most important things to do with them during that time. And so you can't, you know, I'm not going to talk about specific times, but you can't do 10 outcomes worth of things in an hour, you know, like we have to get real. Um, So identifying outcomes for me has always helped because you go, all right, well, there's an outcome there. And that means we have to have activities around it. And how long are those activities going to take? And how much time do we have? And I lesson, you know, I lesson plan. So that's another tip. If people aren't lesson planning and trying to kind of chunk out those pieces of the plan into, yeah, the little luxury content burst pieces, but then hopefully good, robust activities around them. It kind of sorts itself out, but it's the people that start with PowerPoint that I think have the most difficulty around timing because they kind of just throw slides in a deck, right? And then they've got, you know, 40 or 60 or 80 slides, and then they can't quote unquote, get through them in the time that they have. But if we actually get out of the PowerPoint deck and go into lesson planning, then we're more easily able to solve some of those timing issues. Because in the design stage, we can say to ourselves, okay, well, if I ask that question or if I facilitate them through that activity, it's going to take X amount of time. And I'm just creating rows for each of those sections and it kind of, it all adds up, right? So I, I don't tend to have a lot of problems with timing because of the lesson planning process. I think more the more new facilitators or faculty members that you know, would try, if they could try lesson planning, I think they would be able to solve some of those issues for themselves. It helps us get real with how much time we have. I love what you said about the PowerPoint slide deck. That is not, as someone who's done it myself, speaking of failing in public, as someone who's done it, no, no, no. And sometimes you can wake up and get real with yourself before you're actually finding yourself in front of a group of people trying to cram, you know, whatever slides. And I do, I mentioned this with regard to if I'm having technology problems in general, not a hundred percent of the time, but in general, I don't just, they don't need to know all the trouble that I'm having. And same thing with slides too. One of my tricks that I just love, if you find yourself having fallen into this trap and you have too many slides, you don't need to tell them. You can, if you, if you know what, if you've printed out, I, I like to have always the backup plan, right? So if the technology doesn't work, I have a printout and you in in a PowerPoint and different slideshow programs, you can have, you know, nine slides per page or something like that and even print the numbers on there. And if on your keyboard, you just type in the number 14 enter. I could skip some slides and not but yes. not mention it. And so it's not going to work in all cases if you're if you're having them join you publicly on the slides. Obviously, if they're there, they're going to see that those other slides are there or if, you know, if you, you've made your slide deck available to them, but even if you've made it available to them, it's not like you promised you were going to quote unquote talk on all of those slides. So better to have thought, though, what with intentionality, like we spoke about in the beginning, what is it that I'm hoping to do here? And are these slides the best way to accomplish that aim? And yeah, we all, we, we know that you know, sometimes to convey information, I'm going to 
have a great image that'll help really solidify it. But then I've got to have something where I see what they thought about it, test their understanding of it, you know, get get some sort of a gauge on on where they landed with things. Yeah, it, you're so right. I, mean, I think even now, you know, with the pandemic, because we're online, I'm using slide decks less and less, you know, sort of, or I should say fewer slides in a deck and sometimes not even a deck at all because I, slides are a barrier between us and our participants. And I mean, a good slide deck really doesn't have a lot of information in it anyway, but I'm, you know, I keep questioning myself looking at the slide deck going, do I really need a slide for that? I think I can just post those instructions in the chat because they're going to go in the breakout room and discuss it. And they need, you know, let's say it's in zoom and they've got to take it into the breakout room with them. So it doesn't need to be a slide. So I'm just asking myself, you know, is this slide necessary? And I say a lot of the times, if we all asked ourselves that question, the answer is probably no. And so I'm trying to remove that barrier between myself and the participants a lot and and try not to use slide decks. And that's the same for face-to-face. Slide slide decks can also be a barrier, absolutely, between ourselves and and people in the face-to-face environment, but I think even more so online. So intentionality, right? Do we really need a slide deck? Do we really need a slide for that thing? And I think chances are, the answer is often no. I got to interview Dan Levy, who wrote a book about teaching effectively on Zoom. And he has in there to make sure that you have the instructions for whenever you're going to send them into breakout rooms. And I just crack up. It, it's like I just how many more times do I have to fail? <laughs> I do. I think you're you're mentioning, of course, it's in your book as well. But but just the importance of so what is the goal of what I'm about to have them do? If it's breakout rooms or think, pair, share, whatever, what is the goal? What are the instructions? And to have those instructions in written form, because I even if I was in a classroom, you still may not hear me or you may just our minds might have wandered off for just a moment, but especially using web technologies, definitely a challenge with are you going to hear every single word on something as essential as a set of instructions? So I just love that you, if we're not going to use slides to present that instruction slides, then absolutely let's put that in the chat so that it's both in writing and as we're sharing it. <laughs> I just, I've made that one. I, I wish I would have learned the first, you know, five times I do it, but I just, that's one of the areas where I go, don't, don't try to wing stuff like instructions as a facilitator, as a teacher, that's an area where I really need to step up and, and just have that as a commitment because it makes such a difference in how that experience is going to go for everyone. One thing that I've been doing these days when you know co-facilitating, especially this is really useful, is to have a Google Doc that we put up between myself and the co-facilitator of chat posts. So we write, we pre-write all the posts that we're going to put in the chat and kind of think through all that ahead of time. So we've got everything from here's how to rename yourself in Zoom to here's the instruction for the activity or, you know, closing bits or whatever. So we have it all prepared. And that's, you know, just part of the pre-work that we do to prep for the session. And it works like a charm. And then the co, you know, my co-facilitator can pop some stuff in. I can, we can, you know, both draw from it. So it's really working. Before we get to the recommendations segment, I wanted to take a moment and thank today's sponsor, and that is the Distance Teaching and Learning Conference, which is taking place August 2nd through the 5th, 2021. I'm excited about this partnership because not only do I get to share about the conference, but I'm also able to attend and bring along a colleague virtually, of course, myself, and we're excited about this super engaging, fun, and fully virtual event. 
And we'll be looking at what's next from the best of the best in distance education. And they are emphasizing having us feel renewed and invigorated when we get to connect with world-renowned experts, including some that might be familiar to you, including Mahabali, creator of Equity Unbound, Sian Bain, and Jeremy Knox, the authors of The Manifesto for Teaching Online, and so many more. And by attending, you can earn a badge with their conference certifications in distance education topics such as Fundamentals of Online Teaching, Online Education Administration, and Prepared for Teaching Online Bootcamp. Head on over to dtlconference.wisc.edu to learn more. That link should be in the show notes and also within your podcast notes app. So thanks so much to the DTNL conference for sponsoring today's episode. And we're all really looking forward to learning from the experience. This is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations. And I have one that I planned on sharing, but you reminded me of another one, Beth. So I have two. The first one that you reminded me of, I've been using for a while the graphic design website that's called canva.com. And it's great for, we do it for flyers, we do it for email banners, all kinds of ways that you can use it. You can do social media graphics on it, et cetera. You also can design slideshows within it. And most of the time, I don't want to use it for that. So I'll download it either as a PowerPoint or download it as a PDF or all the different ways I might export it. However, we recently, they recently came out with some features that are pretty fun. Some of them are just cute. The, they have a confetti that if you press C while the thing is presenting, it'll drop down little bits of confetti. Super fun. There's, I think if you press O, don't, don't quote me on the keyboard shortcut, but the bubbles will come up from the bottom and just kind of fun something. I, I'm not a huge fan of doing this. We should be careful because there is the idea of cognitive load and if you're doing things graphically that aren't aligned with your intentions, you can actually create more distraction than it's even worth. We were using it for a fun, what we what we had hoped to be a fun look at our first year experience. And so there were, we were bringing together people who didn't already know each other and we were trying to prep them because we did a trivia game. And if you're going to do a trivia game, people might fail. So we were trying to be playful and fun. So I think the confetti worked perfectly because we were celebrating the changes that had happened at our institution. So it it did work well. But I'll tell you the other thing that worked really well is that it now has a timer feature. So while the presentation is running, you can just press on your keyboard five, as in five minutes, and it'll start counting down. And because I had presenters that I had not all worked with, some of them were student presenters, I didn't want to be militant about time, but at the same thing, we had a jam-packed session. And because there was that game at the end, we didn't really, we couldn't really afford to get five minutes off here, five minutes off there, or we weren't going to have time to pull off that game at the end. So it did really work well. I could see Beth it being a little bit distracting potentially in a class if, if, if it wasn't done for a reason. Again, it all comes back to anytime you're talking about technology. But if you need it, how great is that? If you wanted to say a think, pair, share, you've got five minutes or I want you to write these three things down or whatever it is, 
just to have that be more visible, I think is good for everyone. If those are, I finished writing my three things down, I'm kind of feeling impatient. Oh, I only have 30 seconds left to go. Just a good gauge for everyone. But again, I wouldn't say you should use timers in all cases, but I definitely found a use for them. And I thought that was a great new feature. And then I also wanted to recommend a new podcast that is a collaboration between EdSurge and Open Campus, and it's called Bootstraps. And I'm reading from their description. Their goal is to explore questions through in-depth reporting and compelling audio storytelling. Each episode will tell the story of popular myths and assumptions of education. And along the way, we look at experiments in distributing educational opportunity. The goal is to introduce listeners to the complexity of the issues through rich characters struggling to balance their own needs and dreams with those of the broader community. And I listened to their first episode. I didn't realize it, Beth. Oh, my gosh. I get so behind on my podcast listening these days. I apparently listened to it on the first day it came out. That pretty much never happens. But apparently I inadvertently did that because I had known from Jeff Young, who's one of the collaborators on the project. And you'll hear his voice if you listen. I'd known it was coming. So as soon as I saw that, oh, my gosh, it's out. And the first episode, they talk about the origins of the expression, lifting oneself up from our bootstraps. And it actually the way that we use it today is not how it originally, its original meaning. It was really fascinating. And I'm so looking forward to what all these journalists come up with in terms of stories around some of the myths around pulling ourselves up from our bootstraps. It just, especially in the context of education, I'm so looking forward to it. I keep telling Jeff, every time I see some story that has anything to do with this theme, I'm always quick to email it over to him because I know that they're still working on upcoming episodes and I'm just looking forward to the rest of them coming out. So I'll pass it over to you now, Beth, for your recommendations. Nice. Thanks. Oh, I love to hear about the podcast. And I, I use Canva almost every day. I really also love it as well. I use it a lot for social media post creation and that kind of thing. I have three books to recommend. And to be honest, I'm in the middle of reading two of them because I'm just kind of a book hound. And I don't know about you. I like to uh, have a few books open and reading at the same time. So my one I actually have read the whole thing of is Small Teaching Online by Flower Darby and James Lang. And I did love Small Teaching by James Lang, the earlier book that he wrote alone. But when I read Small Teaching Online, you know, I've been involved here in British Columbia with a community that's in higher ed. It's called Facilitating Learning Online or Flow, we call it for short. And so we're teaching people about synchronous and asynchronous online facilitation. And when I read Small Teaching Online, you know, it was kind of one of those books where I keep looking up to myself and go, yes, yes, you know, because I think that it's maybe the second section of the book. It's called Being Human. I'm just looking it up quickly. No, it's called Teaching Humans. And so, I mean, the more, you know, we think about what it looks like for us to be a human and bring, you know, our facilitator presence to our online work, especially the better. And, you know, we're thinking about our students or our participants as humans as well. So that authenticity, humanity piece. So anyway, small teaching online, there's lots of pieces in there, really particularly around facilitating asynchronous online courses, but just in general around being online, lots of great stuff there. The other two books that I'm in the middle of halfway through each, the one is Think Again, Adam Grant's new book, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know is the the subtitle. And one of the stories that 
just jumped out at me the other day was he gives a story of a, of a black man who has done a lot of work with people from the KKK and through their relationships, you know, he's helped people or people made the decision to leave the KKK, shut down chapters and so on. And so, you know, because they've gotten to know each other as real people and realize they're, you know, uh, there's a common human experience perhaps there that they didn't realize before. And so, you know, uh, this, this man has through his work with these folks from the KKK has, you know, just done all this good work, helping people rethink their original positions on equality and race and, and all those things. So really powerful stories. And just like any Adam Grant book, you know, it's a, a fairly, I, I, I don't want to say easy read because it's really, you know, important topics, but he comes at it in such a way that it's engaging to go through. The last one is, and I, don't, I feel like I'm a real James Lang fan today, but I've, I'm also in the middle of his book called Distracted why students can't focus and what you can do about it. So I'm really appreciating learning from him around attention and distraction and focus in the classroom and just lots of good nuggets coming out from that book as well. And um, for both Think Again and Distracted, I'm, I'm looking forward to finishing both and keeping to recommend them both. Well, you've inspired me because that Adam Grant, I've seen him I have heard him on so many podcast episodes, but it just, I loved hearing your description of it. So I've got to get that on my, on my list. And you are in for a continued great experience with James Lang's book. It's amazing. And I don't want to end today's episode with, I think the most important recommendation that I have, and that is that people should pick up your book, Design to Engage, How to Create and Facilitate a Great Learning Experience for Any Group. I love how broad it is in that regardless of context, these are really great techniques to use. It is also, like Adam Grant's book, a very approachable, practical, tangible. This is not a lot of theory, but it's a lot of just real tried and true practices that I know have worked well for you and, and also in your coaching of others. So I don't want to end without without definitely recommending that as well. And just thank you so much for, again, getting in touch with me and getting to have this conversation with you. I, I really enjoyed it and hope this is just the first time because I, I think we're not done yet. <laughs> <laughs> we always have so much more to talk about, I'm sure, right? Just yeah. can go in so many different directions. But thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And I look forward to continuing to listen to your podcast on all those great topics you bring forward. Thank you. Thanks once again to Beth Kugler-Blom for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. If you would like to go reference the show notes, they're probably already in your podcast app. But if you would like to visit them again, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash 359. I'd love to have you subscribe if you haven't already to the weekly updates. I newly redesigned them in January and having such a fun time putting together each week some notes from the most recent episode, some resources, related episodes, recommendations, quotable words, the occasional tweet. It's been fun and I've been getting a lot of positive feedback. So if you'd like to subscribe, head on over to teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.